Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you today and we give thanks that you who are the real joy giver come and provide hope and joy in your Son. Father, we are a broken people. Father, there is so much that we languish under in this world. And we rejoice, Father, that with You is the fountain of life. So, Father, today we ask, Lord, that as we look to Your Word, that our hearts, which are heavy with the burdens of this world, our souls, which are so empty when we look to the things of this world, Father, today direct us to Christ the fountain of living waters. Father, may we cast off and reject seeking satisfaction in anything else but Jesus today. And Father, we know that we will find in Him a merciful and gracious Savior, one upon whom we can cast our burdens and cares knowing that You care for us. So, Lord, work in our midst by Your Spirit today. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading His blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Again, last week we began uh, what we're going to be looking at this week and again Next week as well, as we consider hope for the empty soul. And this morning, we're going to look at how our empty souls can be restored. Last week, we looked in Psalm uh, 87 through... Uh, okay, we're going to have to go with the... For whatever reason, the wireless mic has given us problems. There we go. Sorry about that. Last week, we looked at how the psalmist in Psalm 87 through... 90 uh, described and, and gave a voice to the darkness and the sadness and the depression that can exist within our hearts, the despair that can somehow sometimes creep in. And, and we noted again that even though we know the truths that, that we can have all our springs in the Lord, as the psalmist of Psalm 87 points out, yet we can still find ourselves in darkness and sadness. And while the truth is true, it doesn't necessarily change the way in which we feel. But yet, those psalms provide hope for us. And so the Christian is never without hope. We may face darkness, we may face sadness, but we always have hope. And this morning, as we look at John chapter 4, I'd like us to consider how Jesus brings hope to a woman who is Truly having an empty soul. Now last week we looked at Jeremiah 2.13 very briefly. And we saw how Jeremiah 2.13 points us to the truth that God is the fountain of living waters. But I would submit to you today that one reason, not the only reason, but one reason why we struggle with darkness and despair, we struggle with despondency, we struggle with not being satisfied, is that we are doing what Israel was doing. Notice what God says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. And in forsaking God, who do we forsake? The one who is the fountain of living waters. And instead of going to God, what we do is we hew out cisterns for ourselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Today I'd like us to be challenged to recognize as we see Christ working with a woman who is doing this very thing, how we must Turn to Christ because only Christ can restore and fulfill the empty soul. That only 
in him can we find true satisfaction. So if you're here today and your heart feels empty, your soul feels empty, your life feels empty, there's hope. But it's found in turning to Christ alone. Let's look with me in John chapter 4, verse 1. We'll read through verse 42, and then we'll come back and and sort of look at what Jesus is doing here in this passage. John chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. Now that's a a quick phrase, but it's going to become eminently important in a few moments. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me to drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me? A woman of Samaria. For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir. Give me this water that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband What you have said is true. The woman said to her, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. So the woman left. I'm sorry. Um, skipped ahead. (laughs) The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? 
Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. Quite a lot in this passage. But I'd just like us to step back as we look at this passage and just see the transformation of hope that Jesus brings to a woman who is clearly seeking satisfaction in the wrong things and how he satisfies her with himself so that she is transformed to call others to seek satisfaction in him. I want us to begin by looking at the emptiness of the empty soul. Jeremiah's words in Jeremiah 2.13 call us to recognize that we should not be seeking broken cisterns to hold our water. We shouldn't be looking to other things to satisfy us, to give us that which only God himself, only Christ can give us. But yet, what do we do? We grab broken cisterns and we think that they're going to satisfy us. And here we see in this woman some things that are very typical of those who seek to find satisfaction in the wrong things. And the first thing we see is the emptiness of self-reliance. The emptiness of self-reliance. In fact, throughout this entire interaction, there is a tone of self-dependence and self-reliance that this woman gives as she talks with Christ. In fact, from the beginning of the interaction, she sort of pushes Jesus away. What are you doing talking to me? Why, 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 are, you, why are you reaching out to me? I, I'm, a, I'm a Samaritan. You Jews don't have anything to do with me. It was very unusual for a man to speak privately with a woman, but beyond that, it was extremely unusual in the first century for a Jewish man to speak to a Samaritan woman. There was a level of ethnic um, anger and ethnic division between these two groups that was very, very strong. And so this woman says, I don't want anything to do with you. We see that she is coming to the well by herself. She comes alone. Now again, as we're looking through this and reading this, we wouldn't think much of that. But one of the things you miss here is that the time that this is happening is about the sixth hour. That's about noon. This is a dry and arid um, climate there in Samaria. It's hot. Most of the time, people would go to draw from the well in the early morning of the early morning hours or in the late evening hours because it would be cooler, but nobody would go in the middle of the day. We'll look at for one of the reasons why that may be. But regardless, she comes by herself. These interactions with Christ show that she is trying to find her way, trying to look and make her way through life with dependence upon herself. Now, we're going to see that there are reasons why she depended on herself. In fact, her story is likely a very sad one. We don't know all the details of what goes on, but she's had five failed marriages. 
Her circumstances and her situations are perhaps not necessarily due to faults of her own, but nonetheless, she's been working her way through independence on herself. This is what our world calls us to today. Radical self-dependence. Our society has a pressure upon us to bear up, to, to bring that stiff upper lift, to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And it's unrelenting in the world in which we live today. In fact, our world is geared to help to equip you to depend upon yourself. Self-actualization, self-help, self, 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 all the time. That's what our society calls us to. And well, there's a problem with that. We were never, ever intended to live on our own. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, when, when God creates Adam in the garden and places him there, he says something that is so poignant. And its immediate application is to the creation of Eve. But beyond that, it shows that Adam was never meant to be an independent being. He said, it is not good that the man should be what? Alone. Then he makes a helper fit for him. God created us not to be alone, but to commune with himself and to commune with each other. But yet, we find ourselves in this society saying, you've got to figure it out. And experience teaches us this as well. In fact, this is sort of our natural default. Who can you depend on? Who is really reliable? And I bet you if you think about your life, you think about the people in your life, there may be a person here or a person there that you, that you see as dependable. But let's be honest. People fail you all the time. And so your default point is, well, I have to look out for number who? One, myself. I've got to do it. I've got to be on my own. And the result of this is a social isolation that is completely damaging to our hope. Again, we mentioned that this woman comes in the heat of the day. It is likely either because of her own shame or because of the society's response to her likely because of her many failed marriages and the fact that she was living in an openly um, sinful relationship. It was likely because of those two things that society withdrew from her. They, they took away. And so she, she either got sick of being taunted when she would go at the regular time or herself, because of her own shame, stayed away from others. And she came in the middle of the day when no one would be around. She isolated herself, showing that she's a social outcast, a, a pariah of that society. You know, the reality about depression and persistent sadness and despair is that it causes us so often not to reach out for help, but to withdraw within ourselves. We think that no one can help. We think that, that there's no hope for us in these circumstances. We don't want to be a burden on other people. And so we just take the responsibility on our own shoulders. We, we seek to have self-reliance in all these things. And here's the reality. If you've done this, you know that you can't do it. You crumble and you fall when you look to yourself. Your strength is not enough. When we look to ourselves, what we learn is that we need help. Not that it would be nice, not that it would be convenient, not that it would be a great thing. No, it, we desperately need help. So perhaps we look and we say, well, let's build relationships among each other. And we see, secondly, the emptiness of relationships. While this woman did rely on herself, we also see her looking to other relationships. 
and looking to those as a means of providing satisfaction. And again, this is likely one of the reasons why she was rejected by this society, because she, for her entire life, had tried this man and that man, this relationship, that relationship, another relationship, and five times they left her empty. It's interesting to see how Jesus puts his finger on this problem in a loving way. He doesn't come at her with condemnation and wrath, although that's the reality of what Scripture calls us to. Rather, he comes to point out and say, how's this been working for you? You've had five husbands. And the one you're with right now, it's not your husband. She was seeking satisfaction in relationships. He possibly was seeking satisfaction in, in different sexual adventures as a way to, to numb the pain of what was going on in her life. But throughout it all, they were just proving themselves over and over again to be broken cisterns that could hold no water. How often do we follow that same path, right? Now, we may not have these particular proclivities in our life that this woman has, but how often do we look for satisfaction in relationships, in careers, in, in our families, in our friends, in our possessions, in our riches? On and on the list goes looking, grasping, hoping to find something that will satisfy our soul. And over and over again, we find that they're empty. That they cannot satisfy us. How often have you said to yourself, if I only get X, whatever that X may be, if I can only get married, if I can only have this promotion at work, if, if I can only do this or do that, and we base and, and place our happiness and our joy and dependence upon those things, if only, we live a life full of if onlys, and then when we get them, what do we find? They're still empty. So maybe the final thing we need to look to is religion. And yet religion, bare religion, also leaves us empty. The interaction between Jesus and this woman is, is almost comical when you look at it. Jesus comes and he lovingly puts his finger on the sin problem as she's seeking these relationships. And, and of course, she doesn't want to talk about that, does she? So she very quickly diverts. I perceive you're a prophet. <laughs> Let's talk about religion. And then she talks about what would have been one of the major differences between the Samaritans and the Jews, where they should worship. Now, again, I think to be fair, we need to understand how much that is actually playing a role in her satisfaction. But nonetheless, she uses it as a tool to pivot from Christ's confrontation of that empty vessel and yet it points to the fact that the Samaritans were a deeply religious people, very much cult-like. They had very divergent views from mainstream Judaism. They had different scriptures. They had um, different places where they would worship. They would worship in Mount Moriah. The Jews would mount worship in Jerusalem. They had different views of the end times, what was going to happen. They were very much a separate group from the mainstream. And they would wear that somewhat as a badge of honor. Their religion was one thing that they sought that differentiated them, marked them out, apart from their ethnic heritage, and that they would be proud of. And really, the difference between the Jews and the Samaritans is akin to the difference we have today between evangelical, Bible-believing Christianity and Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses. Like that's, that's how significant the difference was. And yet, that became very much a part of their identity. And so what she wants to do is she wants to draw Jesus into a religious debate. If you've ever had conversations with Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, they want to do the same thing. 
She wants to debate where we're supposed to worship. Whatever her particular intentions were in this moment, her religious peculiarities were very important to her. She was a religious Samaritan. Boy, the same problem exists today, doesn't it? Could we not say, rather than I'm a good Samaritan, could we not say I'm a good Baptist? And look to our going to a Baptist church as the thing that satisfies us? Or our religious efforts? Seeking to live a life of moral excellence and goodness? Seeking to, to differentiate ourselves by the character of our convictions in the world around us? Do we not often look to our religious efforts and and we look and stand back in some satisfaction? Ah, I have done this. Ah, it makes me feel good. Ah, I have accomplished this. And we find and look for satisfaction in our religious activities. What do we learn very quickly? You do all these religious activities. You keep at them. And are they ever enough? No. No. We make it a point to have the right positions, the right forms of worship, the right doctrine, and we wear that as a badge of honor, as the thing that fulfills us. We place our hope in our religion, but bare religion, religious activity, it will always fail you. For eternity, it will fail you. When you stand before God, he is not going to be interested in how many times you attended Bible Baptist Church. He's not going to be interested in how much money you put in the offering plate. He's not going to be interested in how good a person you were. He's only going to be interested if you are in Jesus Christ. And so we look to these things. We look to ourselves. We look to our relationships. We look to religion as a means of self-fulfillment, and they always leave us empty. They're broken cisterns. They can hold no water. Here's the thing about a broken cistern. If you've got a crack in a a vase, crack in a, a cup, you can pour water into it, and it will hold the water for some time, right? But what will eventually happen because of that crack? That water will drain out. And so we go through life and we try to fill ourselves up on these things and they help for a time. But what eventually happens? The crack gives way and the water comes out and we're left thirsty. So what we have here is a woman who sat satisfaction in her independence, her self-reliance, her self-reliance various relationships, and her religious identity. Yet, When Jesus offered her living water, what does she want? That. And the reality is that as we go through life looking to these things, we know intuitively that they cannot satisfy us. All that she trusted in left her empty and parched. She lacked true satisfaction. And I just want you to stop for a moment and think about your life. Think about where you, what has brought you to this point. And do you feel like this woman? Can you relate to her? I think every single human being on the face of this planet has something in common with this woman that we seek satisfaction in the wrong things. Very rarely am I quoting in my sermons Keith Richards and Mick Jagger. But they really hit the nail on the head, didn't they? I can't get no what? Satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction. And I try, and I try, and I try, and I try. I can't get no satisfaction. The Rolling Stones are not calling me up to, to take Mick Jagger's lead whenever he, when, if that ever is going to happen with him. Listen, it is the cry of a soul that is looking for satisfaction in all the wrong things. And it is a cry that is true. The reason why that song is so popular is because it's so true. You know it. 
And I dare to say every single person in this room today, every person listening online, you know the feeling of being empty. But Jesus does not come to this well to just interact with this woman to reveal her emptiness. He comes to restore her empty soul. Again, our scripture reading, Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me where? Still waters. And those still waters, what do they do? He restores our souls. And so we're able to see in this interaction Christ, Christ's restoration of the empty soul. And the first thing that comes clearly through this passage is that Christ restores by pursuing his sheep. Christ restores by pursuing his sheep. Again, look at the beginning here in, in chapter 4, in verse 4. He had to pass through Samaria. Now, we read that and we're like, okay. And I mean, if you look at a map and you see he's coming from Judea and he's going up to Galilee, you would expect him to go through Samaria. But such was the hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans that the Jews would not go through Samaria. They would go around Samaria. They avoided Samaria literally like the plague. They wanted nothing to do with the Samaritans. And so it was very unusual for a Jew to travel through Samaria on their way to Galilee. But what is even more interesting to note and, and what John points us to is that not only does Jesus choose to do this, he speaks of it as an imperative. He had to go through Samaria. Why? What in the world could be his reason to go through Samaria? And the answer is he's going to seek and to save that which is lost. He pursues his sheep and he does it personally. Notice again, he comes to this, to this woman, he comes to this well and his disciples are gone. You know, when he, when he tells the disciples, you go into the town, get something to eat, you don't think he knew that this woman was coming? He did. He came specifically to speak with her specifically. He was not surprised when she showed up at the well. Further, he's cutting through social and ethnic barriers in ways that would be unthinkable to the Jew of that day. Everything in this account points to Jesus going out of his way to meet this woman. I think what's amazing to note here is that her empty soul, her idolatry, her religious aberrations, none of it, none of it caused him to withdraw from seeking her. And so it should be for us. Listen, there are broken people in the world. There are broken people in this church. And how easy we can be like the village of Samaria and seek to distance ourselves from those who are broken. God comes near those who are broken. So we can be challenged here to take up that same cause. We can also find hope in the fact that we have a God, we have a Christ who comes to us even though we're broken. Listen, that song, Just As I Am, points to the fact that there is nothing about us that we can change to prepare ourselves for entrance into the kingdom of God. The only thing we can do is repent and turn to Christ. That is all the fitness that God needs, is that we feel our need of him. And the reality is, is that he does this today. If you're here this morning and your soul feels empty, whatever the reason, Christ comes in grace. He comes with love. He comes. 
No matter what you've done in your past, no matter what aberration, no matter what idol, no matter what sin infects your soul, Christ comes to heal and to restore, to bind up that which is broken. What hope there is in a Christ who seeks and saves that which is what? Lost. Ezekiel speaks of this. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will what? Search for my sheep. I will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. Jesus himself says, as he's talking to Zacchaeus, and, and, and I find this passage so informative. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, we know that. But Zacchaeus was also a tax collector. All right? How, how do you guys feel about tax collectors, right? Not very good. You know, the IRS agent comes knocking the door, you get the letter, you're like, oh, it's the last person I want to see, right? It was 10,000 times worse in the first century. You know what Zacchaeus did? Not only was he a tax collector, he put a bunch of your taxes that he collected into his own pocket. He exploited that. He was shystery. He was in every way, shape, and form a deplorable person to the, people and the, Jew, to the Jewish people in that day. And what does Jesus do? Where does he go? To his house. Jesus says this today, salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save what? The lost. Listen, part of what happens with the emptiness of our soul is it is, it is the yearning and the feeling of our lostness. And that can be a tool that God uses to bring us to recognize our need of him as he seeks and saves that which is lost. So Christ restores by pursuing his sheep. But Christ does not just leave us with our idols. He confronts them. Christ does not simply come in compassion and he does not just simply sit and commiserate with this woman. Rather, he seeks to help us by turning us away from the things that we are pursuing that will never satisfy us. Again, we have to recognize that Christ came when he preached the gospel. He came preaching, and the first word he said was not believe. The first word he said was what? Repent. He confronts us of the things we're looking at for satisfaction. And so he does with this woman. He confronts her self-dependence. He confronts her sinful lifestyle. He confronts her religious dependence and those errors. Listen, he doesn't let any of that slide. When he's talking with this lady who wants to bring up this dispute, he says, look, you're wrong. The Jews have the truth. Salvation is from the Jews. You're wrong. And so Jesus, in, in this interaction, he does not allow the woman's broken condition to allow him to compromise what is true. My, my fear is that so often when we come across these things, we want to compromise what is true. And in reality, when we do that, we're again looking to an idol, that which can never satisfy us. The psalmist in Psalm 115 tells us about these idols. They're silver and gold, the work of men's hands. And listen, this is what idols, this is what empty and broken cisterns do. They have mouths, but what can they not do? Speak. Eyes, they cannot see. Ears, they cannot hear. Noses, they cannot smell. Hands, they cannot feel. Feet, they cannot walk. They make a sound. They cannot make a sound with their throat. And here's the thing. Those who make them their trust... Those who make them, what do they do? They become what? Like them. Everyone who trusts in them. Have you ever felt like you just can't 
give word or expression or do anything right and that the depths and the despair of your soul is such that you just keep trying and trying and trying, that's possibly because you're looking to an idol that can never accomplish anything. Those who trust in them become like them. And so Jesus confronts this woman's idols. Listen, if you're here today and you're looking to yourself for satisfaction, you figure that if you dig deep, if you, if you rest upon your abilities and your actions and, and you find yourself floundering, that is God's grace to you, showing you that you can't do it, that you have to repent of your dependence on yourself. Maybe you've been living your life looking to relationships, hoping in your father or your mother, your grandparents, your spouse, your significant other, your boyfriend, your girlfriend. You think that that that's going to be the all-fulfilling thing for you, and you find yourself empty looking to those things. And so you retreat and you say, well, I guess I'll try religion and you work, and you work, and you try, and, 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 and you seek to do all the things. And then you come to a point where you're saying it's not working. It's because you're looking to the wrong thing. So Christ restores by pursuing his sheep. Christ restores by confronting our idols. And then the final thing, the hopeful thing, is that Christ restores by declaring his trustworthiness. He is the one who provides satisfaction. Jesus begins this interaction with putting his finger on the problem. There was no mistake when he asked this woman to bring this water. There was no mistake that he sat by the well. He's going to use the well and he's going to use water as an allegory of how true satisfaction can come. And and he says, bring me some water. And she's like, why are you talking to me? And we have the conversation that goes on. And, And then Jesus says to her, he says, listen, if you drink of this water, you will be thirsty again. But if you drink of the water that I give, You'll never thirst again. He uses this well as an, as an allegory to illustrate the deeper problem and its solution. She had been seeking to fill up from the well of all these idols and they left her empty. But Jesus was there. And he said, Ask of me and I will give you a water, a water that will come within you, a wellspring springing up to eternal life. What he's asking her to do is to turn away from all those empty, broken cisterns and to turn to him. To ask of him. And she does that. Sir, she says in verse 15, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. But then he puts his finger on her other idols. Listen, ask your husband. I'm I'm not going to let you just think that you can slide by and, and think that your sinful actions don't require me to show you that they're idols. And he does that lovingly, but clear, clearly he does that. And then he points to genuine worship. She asks this question, where should we worship? And and Jesus comes in and it's just interesting to note the reality that counterfeit worship will always leave us empty. Always. And counterfeit counterfeit worship can be done like the Samaritans were doing in the wrong place and in the wrong way and in ways that were unpleasing to the Lord. But counterfeit worship can also be done in churches in the right way. You know, Jesus rebukes the Samaritans once here in John. Guess who he's rebuking the rest of his ministry? The Pharisees. They had just the same problem of worship that the Samaritans did. They didn't worship God in the 
genuineness of their heart. And so that's why Jesus says it's not about Jerusalem or Mount Moriah. It's not about here or Jerusalem. Rather, the reality is what you have going on in your heart. Because God wants not fake worship. What kind of worship does he want? True worship. And true worshipers are those who worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. God is a spirit and those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. What hope there is to be found in hearts that look to the Lord, genuinely look to him, not in pretense, not in hypocrisy, but in the depths of their souls and say, I place all my hope in you and I rejoice in you and praise you for that. And God accepts that worship. He's looking for people to worship him that way. What joy there is when we worship him, when we have found in him full and complete satisfaction. The psalmist says in Psalm 36, 7 through 9, How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from what? The river of your delights. For with you is what? The fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Listen, it is only when we come to Christ, when we cry out to him, when he alone is our hope, that when we come to the house of God, we are able to then feast on the abundance of his house. I wonder if you've been coming to services here at Bible Baptist and you've been walking away and you think, ah, that was okay, we sang some nice songs, but I didn't really get much out of it. I wonder if you come to church and, and you find yourself still hungry. And maybe it's because you're not looking to Christ to satisfy you. You're looking to other things and this is just a crutch or a pretense. Listen, it will be no surprise that if that's your focus, then you leave here unfulfilled. It is only from finding fulfillment in Christ that we are able to feast at the table of the abundance that God gives in his house. Or as Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, after he was the Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, the right tribe, the right teacher, he had it all together. And he says this in Philippians chapter 3, he counts everything as loss because there's something better. What is that better thing to all of Paul's religious exercises? It is the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus his Lord. He's willing to suffer the loss of everything and count them as garbage in order that he may gain what or who? Christ. Paul is a testimony here of how looking to Christ finds and brings hope and satisfaction from all the emptiness of our lives. And so Jesus, as he works through this passage, we come to verse 25. And the woman, in response to what he said, said, you know, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And you know what Jesus says to this woman? He says, I who speak to you, am he. He shows her that her idols have left her empty, but that he can fulfill her deepest desire. That he alone comes to give that hope. He is the Messiah. He declares himself as the only hope for this woman. And so it is for us. Jesus Christ is your only hope. I said last week 
that if you are hoping in anything else but Christ, to the, the saddened and darkened soul, if your hope is placed in anything else but Christ, you have no hope. That's a stark thing to say, yet it is the truth. Unless you turn to Christ, you will live your life in the darkness and despair and despondency that you have been experiencing up until this time. But Jesus comes and he says, I am the Messiah. I'm your hope. Ask of me. And so the message of the gospel, the message of the good news of Jesus Christ is that while you have no hope apart from him, you can have hope by turning to him. Crying out in faith, turning from those other idols and turning to him alone. This is who Jesus comes to proclaim and he comes to proclaim himself this way to those who need to be saved. And so if you're here today and your life has been filled with seeking satisfaction, the emptiness of other things, Christ comes and says, trust in me, rest in me, drink deep of the water of life that I alone offer. And then there's a joy in this passage. Boy, this passage ends so much different than it begins, doesn't it? Because Christ restores through transformation. There's a transformed dependence in this woman. What's interesting to note here is what she says, what's, what, what's said here. The disciples come after he says, I'm the Messiah, verse 27. And they marvel that he's talking to a woman. No one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? And then notice what the woman does. And I don't think John puts this here just incidentally. What does she do? So the woman left her what? Her water jar, her pot. She left it. She, she left that which she had been Focusing on it, and, and again, the water jar is a symbol for everything. All those broken cisterns. Jeremiah 2.13 echoes here. As she sets aside the broken cisterns that can never satisfy her. And she looks to a Christ who provides now for her full satisfaction, a Savior with whom is the fountain of life. The woman reversed the rebuke of Jeremiah. She realized that there was no hope in those broken cisterns. She forsook them and turned to Christ alone. And then her relationships are transformed. She's no longer socially isolated. Well, what's amazing here is what her first reaction is to do is it's not to with, persist in her withdrawing from her society. What does she do? She goes to the people. I mean, think about the change that has happened in her heart before she was filled with shame and social isolation and being left to herself. But now she goes to the people. She comes and says, come, see a man who told me everything I've done. Can this be the Christ? So not only does she come and, and begins to restore the broken relationships with that society, but now she comes to say, this is him. This is the one. You can have this same level of satisfaction. And the villagers see this woman who is is clearly transformed by her interaction with Christ. Again, he, they see this woman coming and they're like, she's talking to us? They're shocked. And so what, do the, what does the whole village do? They get up and they follow her out to the well. And so she's no longer socially isolated. Secondly, she's focused on Christ. And here we find that the great hope 
of what God's transformation does is that now it has transformed her relationship so that she no longer relates to the people in that city with her shame and her sin. She relates to them by speaking about Jesus. He forms, if you will, the glue of a new community that is about to come bursting onto the scene. And what we find in verse 39 is that many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him. Why? Because of the woman's testimony. She engaged her community with the gospel, and as a result, not only was she transformed, the entire community is changed. And so that transformation makes her no longer socially isolated. It makes her focused on Christ. And thirdly, she's now accepted into a new community. What's interesting here is that in verse 41, it says that many more believed because of his word And they said to the woman, she's no longer a pariah. She's now an accepted member of this community. She's someone that people are talking to. She's no longer outcast and dejected and by herself and isolated. She now has a people, a community that she can call her own. And that community is bound not by common interests, No longer by their same ethnic heritage. It's not about them being Samaritans anymore. What is it that binds them all together? Look again at verse 42. It is no longer because of what you have said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. They were no longer known as Samaritans. They were known as Christians. They were known as those who looked to Christ alone for their hope. And so what a transformation we see. What a day this was for this woman, right? She went to the well as she did probably every other day all by herself. And she's transformed because she meets Jesus. And he comes and fulfills the deepest longings of her heart. And so if you're here today, if you're listening to this online, and you find yourself in the darkness and the deepest despair, there is hope in finding, there is restoration available for you in Christ. Seek that restoration by trusting in him. Trust in Christ. He's the only one who satisfies the empty soul. And he will satisfy you. Listen, Jesus comes not to those who are in no need of a physician. He doesn't come to heal those who are well. Who does he come to heal? The sick. He comes not to call the righteous, but he comes to call sinners to what? Repentance. He comes to us who are broken. Every single one of us, we need to recognize our brokenness. And listen, if you're here today or you're listening and, and, and you struggle with depression, you struggle with darkness, and, and you feel that as some sort of weight of shame upon you, Realize, we're all like that. We're all broken. But Christ doesn't come to leave you there. He calls you to turn from whatever else you've been looking for for satisfaction and come to him. Notice what the psalmist says in Psalm 90, 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice And be glad all our days. That's the cry of someone who needs satisfaction crying out to him. Turn to Christ. Turn from your idols. 
Listen, the idols that you're looking to are nothing but empty cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold how much water? None. And the reality is that even as Christians, Jeremiah 2.13, you know who that's written to? Israel, God's people. And that same principle exists today so that we who are Christ's, we find ourselves straying easily to look to other things to satisfy us. And Jesus comes and says, look to me alone. As Isaiah says in Isaiah 55, 1-3, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And then the question is, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not what? Satisfy. Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. That your soul may live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast sure love for David. So we seek restoration by trusting Christ. We seek restoration by turning from idols. Thirdly, we seek restoration by proclaiming Christ. I skipped over verses 31 through 38. But what is amazing here is Christ's response to the disciples. Disciples come and, and they say, you know, Jesus, you, you need to eat. Rabbi, eat. And then Jesus says to them, you know what? I would rather be about doing my Father's will. That's my food. And, and what, what Jesus is pointing to is that he himself finds satisfaction in speaking of Christ. And so it is for us. Really, one of the most thrilling experiences in your life should be sharing Christ with others. As we sang that song, hallelujah, I have found him. That's what this woman did. And so we as his disciples are called to go and to take the message. Jesus has been working in the Old Testament to bring this about. Christ through the Holy Spirit and the prophets have said over and over again that Christ is the fountain of living waters. So join in that chorus and Take the message. And you know what Jesus says you'll get to do? Reap. Based upon what others have done in their work. Only Christ can satisfy. Tell the world this truth. Tell them that the Lord is near to all who call upon him. To all who call on him in truth. That he fulfills the desires of those who fear them. That he hears their cries and saves them. And then finally, as we turn to Christ, turn from idols, proclaim him, then as people come to recognize that reality, you know what happens? What exactly happened in this town, in Sychar, that there is a people that comes together to encourage each other. Seek encouragement through God's people. God does not call you to these truths in isolation. He calls you to grasp these truths with others. To come to the church. And so this should be a place in our conversations. This should be a place in what we talk about where we are pointing people to the hope that Jesus is. Isn't he so good? Are you talking about that? Are you encouraging each other in the hope that Christ is? The writer of Hebrews says it this way. We need to hold fast to that confession of our what? Our what? Hope. Those who are depressed, we need hope. And we have that confession of hope in Christ. We do this without wavering. And we understand that God, who is promised and faithful, and then we need to consider how to stir up another unto love and to good works so that we do not neglect to do what? Meet together. 
And even in the first century, there were people who were doing this, that were neglecting the time together in God's people. But listen, we need to meet together so that we can do what? Encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Boy, this world is corrupt and messed up, isn't it? And boy, the darkness around us can seem so dark. That should show us that we need satisfaction in Christ and the encouragement of each other all the more. As we come to a good shepherd, the one who makes us lie down in green pastures, who leads us beside still waters, the one who restores our souls. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for who Christ is. And we ask, Lord, today that you would take these words and bind them to our hearts. Father, that we would realize our only hope is found in a Christ in whom we find full fulfillment.